Welcome to another episode of KUSI's Mark My Words, hosted by our very own Mark Mathis. Welcome to another edition of America's Fastest Growing Podcast, KUSI's Mark My Words. And today's guest is someone who we all have grown to know and love and has been with KUSI since the very beginning, the chief engineer of KUSI, Mr. Fred Swift. How are you, sir? Great. Good to be in San Diego. <laughs> now, what year did you come to KUSI? 19, June 24th, 1984. Golly, that's what Mikey told me. And I was like, no, I thought he was here since 93. 84. So you, you were here before it was KUSI. No, it was KUSI. I'd worked at KCST back in the day, which became KNSD. For four or five years. Okay. And then a guy that I worked with went to Philadelphia, Richard Large. And then he moved out here to put KUSI on the air with a man named Bill Moore. And they put the station on the air. And a friend of mine that worked with me at KCST in the day was Richard's assistant. And he was killed in a plane accident. So after his demise, I was offered the job to come over and work as transmitter supervisor by Richard. And I took the job and I've been here ever since. Yeah. But wasn't wasn't KUSI before it was KUSI? Wasn't it a part of uh, uh, San Diego State? Or no, it was a license license held by USIU, United States International University. Okay, they did not have the capital or the ability to put the station on the air. And a man named Mike McKinnon Sr. had those abilities and approached the school for their license and went into a partnership with them. Okay, and then was able to take the station from... Just a license or construction permit to actually on the air and operating. Okay. So how did he get finally get it uh, totally away from uh, National University? I bel- If I remember correct, a long, oh, time, now, long time ago. Junior uh, explained this to me. We went to lunch one day, and it's kind of like... You start to lose a little bit of the information and the details. But how did he finally get it uh, from National University to just KUSI? The school, I believe, fell on hard financial times. Right. And they were running multiple campuses. Not, don't quote me on all this, but it's a vague memory. It's a long time ago. They were running into multiple financial problems with the multiple international campuses all over the world and the traveling and all that, you know, the internet hadn't come into fruition at that point in time. So remote learning wasn't, you know, so they were all traveling around. Right. The main campus was out in Mar- East Miramar. Right. Yeah. And for a couple of years, now I know this, because this is what Junior told me, a couple of years, Mr. McKinnon Sr. was kind of working with the board of directors of National University getting KUSI up and running. Right. That was around, I think it wasn't the most fun time. It wasn't the most fun time Mm -hmm. of of their lives. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Uh, It was around, I think it was September. I can't remember the exact date. 1982 is when it went on the air. They actually had their first day on there. Somewhere I've got the video of the initial broadcast. Yeah. Before we, long before we did news, we ran syndicated movies and Beverly Hillbillies and, I remember a lot of films, 16 millimeter film on projectors. When did news go come on the air? We tried a brief stint of it at our old bit. We moved to this facility in 1990, the current building we're in right now. And we were over on a small 11,000 square foot studio in Kearney Mesa by on Mercury Street. 
and we tried to do launch a small newscast over there and it didn't go over very much. It's not enough assets or resources to do it with the school involved. Mm-hmm. They aren't really willing to commit to any kind of financial backing to get a newscast going. And so that didn't go so well. And then Mike eventually got, I guess, the controlling interest in the station from the school or bought them out or whatever. Don't know all the financial details in that. Well, he bought them out from what I understand. Yeah, the debt was pretty high from what I hear. Yeah. Um, So he got control of it. And shortly thereafter, we found this building. Richard and I went looking for a building and we found this building and we retrofitted the building. It was an old data center for one of the failed SNLs. They were printed laser checks. They had bulletproof glass, had all kinds of bizarre stuff in here. Really? Yeah, we had. they had just walked out in the middle of the night. They left windsurfers. They left PDP-11 computers. They left all kinds of hardware laying around. But it worked out good for us because they had a computer flooring, air conditioning above ground. The floor is elevated, so you run the cables underneath the floor. I wouldn't have to put a bunch of cable trays in. And we moved over here and started news in about 32 days, I think it was. We all worked seven days a week, by you know, every day, 12 hours a day. And got it moved and started now, was that was that when they brought in the guy from uh new york who was the anchor uh yeah harold grimsby roger grimsby roger grimsby yeah mike had hired mike had hired a guy named al idelson from abc was one of the original uh producers or producer vice presidents i think of 2020 uh-huh. and mike mike had hired al and al was kind of the talent consultant at that point in time and he found Rod, I guess Roger was out looking for work. And that's Roger came over and this was our original anchorman. Roger, here's a story about Roger's name. I know Roger went from having, this is back in the 80s and 90s. Okay. He left NBC in New York and went to ABC. And right across the street from the ABC studios was a, was a, was a bar that Roger liked to go to. So NBC was so pissed that he left go to ABC, they bought the building and tore down the bar so he couldn't go to his favorite bar. He had a pretty, he had a good following, I'm assuming, so it probably hurt the numbers a little bit for that day. <laughs> yeah, that, but that day in time, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it mattered. Yeah. I mean, a, a, one or two numbers and, and you're losing millions of dollars. Oh, sure. Number one market. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah, a lot of cash flowing. So let's get, your KUSI goes on the air and how was it perceived initially? Uh, now you didn't have a morning show at the time, right? You just had no. We had a 10 p.m. newscast. Was the first shows we had done. Okay. And uh, it took a little while, but it you know there wasn't a lot of competition because you know San Diego's typically seems to me I go to bed early, but I get up early. But back in that era, the General Dynamics and all the companies that still did aerospace had three shifts or two shifts, so there's an early crowd and a late crowd. So. Providing a newscast at 10 p.m. actually benefited the community, and we actually got a pretty good following. Yeah. And yet, I, I remember, because I was here in 99 to 01 over at the old CW, right. which is now Fox. Right. But uh, it didn't take, I mean, if y'all went on the air in 90, what did you say? 90? About 90, 91. Okay, so vaguely somewhere. So nine years, and you're like the number one newscast at ten. You're the only newscast, right? Uh, But but you also had a morning show that was killing it. Yes, at the time. Well, being an independent allowed us a lot more freedom than the network affiliates because they had commitments to their network provided morning shows. Right. So we could do things that you know we didn't have break times to be concerned with. We railed our breaks when we wanted to. 
it was one of the things that probably benefited local news more than anything else as being an independent. Yeah. You know, we had Rod Luck and we've had all kinds of famous people through the years, you know, out in the community, actually dealing with the community on a one-on-one basis that other places couldn't do. They just couldn't commit the time. Who was that? Mike's, Mike and Al. Yeah. Was it? He said, let's get out and go out. Mike Senior's always professed local news. It's the only thing that saves us from anything else. We're the only thing unique to this marketplace is that we're lucky enough to have an independent. Right. Because we don't have a skewer. We don't have a network owner or a large corporate telling us what to do. We do what we want. We report the news on a fair basis. Right. I will say uh, of every place that I've worked, there's uh, the local stations, one in Charlotte and one here. Uh, Charlotte's tied to CW and it was tied to Fox at the time. So we were locally owned, but, you know, affiliated with. Mm -hmm. But everywhere I go in this town, everybody knows KUSI. Everybody. I mean, if you're on KUSI, people know who you are. Correct. And and that's been the case since the morning show, since the 10 o'clock show, or since... Closed. I think since we went on the air. I mean, we offered a lot of things that the other stations couldn't. Everyone can run syndicated programming, but we picked programming that the people liked. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a kid of the 60s. I mean, I like Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction, all those old shows. Yeah. You know, and sooner or later, Cozy went on the air with basically that same programming on the NBC.2 channels. Right. So, you know, my, we were ahead of the game before it was a game. Right. With the with the multiple channels from digital TV. Um, What's the bit, what was the bit, the hardest thing looking back on kind of getting this thing up and running? Um, moving was and, it was it getting news on the air? We moved and started news at the same time. That was a lot of work. That was very it was it was taxing. We worked our butts off. We, yeah. So is that is that the hardest thing? I mean, I mean, we've had you know we've had probably like we had the the you had to deal with we had the Harris fire where our transmitter building caught on fire and yeah I mean I've been I've driven through fire you know taller in my truck to get to the transmitter site and I mean there's always challenges in in broadcasting because you're trying to bring information to the public at trying times right so it's you know it's it's been an interesting life I'll tell you it's. But Never a dull moment. <laughs> I would think, I just, I don't know, it's just places that I've worked. I'm just thinking the engineer, the chief engineer, you know, I was just telling Mike, you know where the bodies are buried, you know, you know everything about this building mm-hmm. and news, just the way you people receive it has changed just in the time that I've been doing it so much yeah. from, you know, we used to satellite trucks and, and, and live trucks, and now you can just take a backpack out. Take a phone. Take a phone. Yeah, with the right application, get it on the air. Yeah. So, and how has that is that been a difficult process, or has it? Been I think for you to- I think it's changed the landscape a lot. Um, it's not really been a lot of challenge because you know, it's still a camera taking an image, recording still frame sequentially, and making a movie out of it. So it's not technologically been that much different. Obviously, the resolution changes in coding and the way digital works and. I think that the complex part of the puzzle is the social media aspect of it, which Mike, Mike Jr., his son is doing ours and does you know, a pretty darn good job of it trying to keep up with it. And the, and the pace of which news changes now right. is just crazy how it just whims back and forth and back and forth. So it gets difficult to cover it accurately. I think, I think the 24-hour news cycle with the, with the cable news networks and stuff have changed the definition of journalism in some ways because it's sensationalism more than it's telling a truth or telling a story a lot of it is opinion 
A lot of it is opinion. Some people think that the opinion shows are, um, you know, news shows and they're opinion shows. Right. You know, and so, but the pace of it is, has changed dramatically. Well, and, and I think participation in the community, they just don't, you don't see participation from the other folks in the community like we have. Right. I just don't see it in there. And it may be because of staffing. It may be just because of the changing complexion of the revenue models. Who knows what causes it? I just don't see the other facilities keeping the interest in the community, uh, what used to be called ascertainments, issues for the community on, and what to do to improve them. Right. That is kind of our responsibility as a broadcaster to help the community. Well, at the end of the day, we are in San Diego. And when I go out to events, uh, whether it's the Surfer Girl Surf Pro or the car show that the CHP is having or wherever it was, um, they are beyond delighted that we're there. Um, they're very grateful that we're there, but we're also grateful that they're happy we're there because there was a lot of places that, you know, I've worked that people were not very happy that. You the know. news media showed up. Yeah, it depends. It depends on the ambiance, but it's a symbiotic relationship. We need stories. They need coverage. Right. So it works for both sides of the puzzle. So where have so so you've seen so you've seen the news grow and you've seen other people come in and the competition come in and you've seen the you've seen it go from satellite trucks to to you know backpacks and that type of thing. I mean, where do you see it going? I mean, if you had a a future a crystal ball and saw where it was headed well i think at some point the tv transmitters will go away okay the the entities or the the government is auctioning off all the television spectrum for cell phone coverage it could be good it could be bad but it may spell the end of free television for the for the consumer unfortunately because the internet's never really free. You're always paying a fee either through your broadband modem or through whatever mechanism you use to get the internet streaming. The the free over-the-air broadcast may be in jeopardy over time. Yeah. The the spectrum is too valuable. Uh you know, we started with channels two through eighty-three, we're down, then they went down two through sixty-nine, and they went down to two through fifty-one, and now we're down to two through thirty-six. Right. And it uh, San Diego is affected because of our adjacency to between Los Angeles and, and uh, Tijuana. There's just not enough spectrum for us all to stay. Right. And that's why we just recently had a spectrum auction and some places left. It, you know, it was to purchase the channels and to sell them off and auction them off for revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know what the long-term support will be for free television. I think at some point it'll all become over a stream. And Well, I can't tell you how many people also that I watch or, or I've been friends with will come up to me and tell me, you know, hey, uh, streaming was uh, was watching you on streaming today or, or streaming got interrupted by something or whatever. How how difficult is that to monitor and to, to fix? And uh, yeah. It's gotten much better. The people I know watches via stream. Right. You know, the, the big problem is we can't stream anything but our news. So syndication rules and rights and copyrights. And, right. We can't we can't broadcast what we call broadcast on the Internet. Only the property that belongs to McKinnon Broadcasting, our newscasts and San Diego people and things that we produce can be actually streamed out of markets called geofencing. Okay. And so people outside the market can watch, but they only get to watch the news. They don't see the commercial breaks, so you don't get the revenue. 
So there's a quite a bit of restraints on that because the actors don't get compensated for out of market performance. Right. We went through a lot of that was a lot of the growing pains with the initial streaming systems. We couldn't control it. You know, and since then we've invent, you know, we've got ground general purpose interrupts that can turn on and off the streams through tally lights and and then they have what it calls roll-in ads. I think the the, will, the challenge will be monetizing the streams, getting an equal amount of money that we would get from our broadcast ad sales to that stream revenue. And I think that's the big challenge. Do you think uh, it will be more of a desire from the KUSIs of the world for, for more local content so they can I, stream it? Uh, yeah, but I think the big problem comes in vetting who you're getting the stories from. Right. You know, obviously a fire is a fire and it, it, it is, it's very black and white. But when it comes down to stories where you're telling stuff about political air angles or things like it, it, it's a tough angle to vet. Yeah. You know, and the Internet's filled with the wild, wild west, you know, with misinformation and all the other challenges that it has because it's created a lack of a better term, a CB radio of video. Right. <laughs> You know, well, no, I mean, people are getting information and they're getting a little piece of the information. Right. And then they're going and they're putting it on whatever Facebook and people run it, with it. And then they run with it and they say, this is true. This is the fact. And it's only a little piece of a snippet of something. Right. And they both. So some of the benefit with the freedom of speech are those issues. So you've got some challenges there. And. Without any real regulation, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and these guys have tried to reel it in. I mean, I think they're politically skewed in how they're doing it, unfortunately. It's not really fair in some what I see. Uh, broadcasting's still pretty fair, I believe. Yeah. I think because we're held to public trust, I mean, I think we're still on the edge of being accurate. Right. We have to be accurate. We can't, we got to vet what we put on the air because we're responsible for what we put on the air. A guy taking and shooting a story on his phone, you know, as we've seen so many of these police interaction videos that they're shot from one way, but it isn't really the truth when you watch the other camera angles. Right. So, you know, presentation and editing can do it. And I, you've been in the business line on how well you can edit stuff and make it look the way you want it to look. Right. That, and that's an unfortunate thing. Live stuff, a whole, a whole different ballgame. It's live. It's real usually. Yeah. But it's getting harder and harder to tell that. Well, there was a show. You remember this, California Gold. Yeah. Hugh Howes are great series. Everywhere I go. People say, oh, my God, you sound just like Fuel House. Yeah, there's a similarity. And all he did was go around and. But he did awesome shows. He explained things about California that nobody knew. I mean, one of the best ones I've ever seen was the one he did on the California Aqueduct. Yeah. How we get our water in Southern California. Just to, it interested me into going to read Mulholland about Mulholland. So, you know, how he got water to California and how he developed the L.A. Basin and just all the. It, yeah. It's just it sparks interest in people that think about things. It's kind of an inquisitive show. It was a great show. And he went through these little communities, uh-huh. you know, like, uh, God, what was the one? Another one memorable. Kalinga, I think, where yeah. the big earthquake was. And I think he did Park Parkfield, where yeah. the San Andreas crosses the bridge is bending. And just all kinds of interesting California stuff. How have you seen California, specifically San Diego, change and since 1984? Oh, when I was a kid, there was no freeways. Really? Yeah, I remember going to downtown with my dad to go to the parts houses on Wabash. There was no 94. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember Interstate 8 being two lanes. I remember Interstate 15 being two lanes. I mean, just the development is crazy. The biggest, it got crowded. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not as bad with COVID, but the traffic, I mean, just traffic. 
Yeah. Just waiting to go anywhere, do anything. It got really, really busy. Now, I don't know, when I was here in uh, 99, you know, and, and, and I grew up in Texas, uh, and California was, you know, palm trees and movie stars. Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, when you're growing up and, and that, it, yeah. and, and, you know, the world was a lot bigger then. We didn't have the internet. You couldn't log on. And, right. You know, View cameras. Right. Yeah. View cameras in San Diego. Yeah. So you're, you're seeing San Diego version. Through someone else's eyes. Right. Right. But when I got here in 99, I can remember how beautiful but I thought it was. I still think it's beautiful, but I think it's lost a little bit of its luster because of the streets and some of the... Well, the shine is coming off. I mean, one of the things that's changed the dynamic of San Diego, we don't have the high-income aerospace engineering jobs and stuff. The General Dynamics and Warren, and all these companies, they built this city. Right. And now we've gone to, as we just found out through COVID, that, you know, hospitality and hotels and we got great weather great place to have a convention if you can have them right but the reliance and the non-diversification of our economic model from our political leadership has been bad yeah we need a more balanced economy we should never let general dynamics leave we should have done what we could to stay don't know if it was prop 65 ran them off or whatever but those jobs are what built the city and made it beautiful they did the fundamental development of this place from probably 45 on. And the military, you know, thank God we still have them because that's what's really driven our economy through all these bad times. The military's kept this place alive, right. in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I've lived here since I was born here. Sure. So. Well, I can remember when uh, the Navy left Charleston, South Carolina, they went through a long spell of trying to recover that city. Oh, it's tough. And uh, if, uh, you know, if anybody pulls up shop here from a military standpoint, this city's going to go through hell yes. for a long time. Military is welcome here, and, but I mean the hospitality. You know, I mean we, that that was our number one industry, and and that was COVID. We lost that. Yeah, I mean we're, we're going to get we're about to get hit. I think. Well, we we've, we've seen these we've seen these ups and downs many times. I mean, when General Dynamics closed, everybody thought we'd dry up and blow away, but we didn't. Luckily, we did not. Right. I mean, we went through some serious recession periods over that, but. Right. Jobs have come back, but it, it, like I said, it built into hospitality, mm-hmm. and it's all good till you have a reason why you can't have hospitality. Right. I mean, it's it's. I I, I read somewhere I think that we lost three hundred fifty billion, or I can't even remember. It was like some phenomenal amount of number lost because we relied on these things for our income. Right. So, it's. I mean, all these places need people working in them, and we need people coming here and staying in them. The convention. It's a beautiful place to have a convention. So we've got, but you got to do something, but politically, I think we need taxes and the business taxes and everything to entice. Oh, it's oppressive. California has turned oppressive. You can't get get businesses to come in if you're going to be taxing them as much as you're going to be. It's not even that. It's telling them how to run it and tell them what to pay. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I, I look at some of the way that we're approaching things and it's not balanced. Picking on the guy. I've never worked for a poor man. Right. Nor I don't think anybody in this room has. Right. So this idea that the rich man is the boogeyman and we need to tax him more is not not the, the angle we should be going at. Right. Everybody needs to pay a little bit, right. including those that are you know poor, because we all pay sales taxes. We're contributing. Even poor people pay sales taxes. Mm-hmm. It's perhaps the better way to make it more fair. 
A guy with more money is going to spend more money. He's going to pay more taxes. A guy with less money is not going to buy as much. He's going to spend less. So I think the political leadership has let us down in how they view our taxation. But it's mind-numbing some of the decisions that they make. I've never worked for a poor man either. Right. I've never received a check from a poor man. Nope. So it's mind-numbing to me the decisions that are coming out of... Dislocated Sacramento. Yes. Or as Turco used to say, Sacramento. Yeah. I mean, it is just... I, I well, I, I it hasn't always been like this, Fred. No, I mean it. We back in the nineties and 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 uh, it's special interest groups. They're, they're they're the root of most all these problems, right? You know, I mean, external influences and money always corrupt. I mean, it's and unfortunate. Unions and television uh, didn't uh, eight and seven didn't HD unionize. Channel ten, I think, is still NABIT. Channel eight is not. Thirty nine is not. Uh, they're still alive and well in Los Angeles, New York, major cities. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's that. That's not what's affecting our business so right. much. But it, the public sector, they've basically have ran public public businesses that they can't afford anything other. I mean, other than the prevailing wage contractors that work for government, right. you can't pay that. It, you can't stay competitive with all the other costs. Right. So they've moved into the public sector, which is a bottomless pit because of the way Gray Davis had written the laws, the the taxpayers or land land taxpayers, you know, property taxes are on the hook for these deficits that the states created with these retirement programs for these special interest labor groups. Mm-hmm. And it's multitude of it's not just one. Yeah. It's a multitude of them. I mean, there's there's retirements even in this city that are just staggering oh. how we cover it. Yeah. It's affecting everything. I mean, at some point, it has to be cut off. It will. It? I don't know. Not the way I understand the ways the laws are written. We'd have to get a lawyer to really interpret that. I mean, you, you, you almost would have to file for bankruptcy and start over as a city. Well, Orange County did, yeah. but I'm not sure state's able to. But these ideas that we got surpluses and stuff, they're not surpluses. They're just put, kicking the can to the next administration. That's what they're doing. And 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 the... the uh, it's in the trillions. The retirement, not the retirements, but the uh, pensions. Pensions in this city are, are killing us. Right. They're the reason we have bad roads. We have failing water pipes. I mean, you have to fix infrastructure. You don't have a choice. You got to be able to get rid of the water and you got to deliver water. Right. And, and, you know, another thing on the horizon is water. Yeah. They're not addressing any water storage, and particularly San Diego. We're on the end of the pipe. Right. We are the end of the pipe. But up north is where they need to be holding on to the, 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 more, the, the water. Business. Right. I mean, if the Oroville Dam is a prime example of Northern California not paying attention to infrastructure. Now, the, the, when I was in Colorado, they said, uh, you know, because they had the pipeline from the front range to the western slope right. of water. Right. And they said they're not killing people for stealing horses anymore. They're, they're killing people for stealing water because they would deter that pipe right. into their farmland to... Well, water is always water has always been a problem in Southern California. We're an arid desert, right? So without the water, we can't be here. I mean, um, I I just don't see that being addressed in Sacramento. You just you know you hear all these other hot button issues, but not what no lifeblood is water, right? And no one's addressing it. And the fact that they're not doing anything to save the water—that's been my biggest argument since I've been here. You know, Coleman talked about global warming. Mine is this whole water thing in Northern California. got to learn how to keep that water. Almost 70% of it runs off into the Pacific. Correct. Even in our, we shouldn't be in this big of a drought. Well, the Sacramento Delta, salt, salt flat marsh rat, Nancy Pelosi's favorite subject. 
Uh-huh. I can't remember how many millions of dollars in the 2008 stimulus bill went to preserving that rat. It's a rat that lives in the water basin where it flows into San Francisco Bay. So yes, I mean, they need to have water come into the bay. But I mean, another side of this is agriculture. It's a great deal of our, you know, we feed a lot more people than we live in this state. Right. And without water, we can't do that. I heard they're ripping almond trees up. I mean, from what I understand, an almond takes five gallons of water to come to make that fruit or that nut. Uh-huh. So they're ripping up almond trees. I mean, the Central Valley is just a vast economic, you know, agriculture area. And sure. if that goes out, that's going to be a lot of jobs gone. Right. You know, and and Peril Valley is another one. And right now, Southern Arizona has been cut off. They've already cut the Colorado River water. Where where's all? Where do you see all of this going? I mean, something's got to get us something. Well, I think that the I mean, something's got to get. I'm pretty sure the guys who designed the original infrastructure never designed it for 39 million something people. Right. And we just, the thirst for more and more taxes and it, you just got to put a cap on. I mean, everybody wants to develop, but the problem is the development's all within the coastal range where there's no water other than salt water. At least we have a desalinization plant. We were thinking somewhat ahead, but that requires a lot of energy to do that. Now, if you solar and wind, then it's kind of carbon neutral and stuff like that, which is not a bad concept. Hard to do. Uh, Can't run it at night. There's got to be a different way of thinking. Right. Yeah, I think different way of thinking and a different way of uh, expenditures for this state and specifically San Diego to survive. And yes. Yeah. And we're so dislocated from Sacramento. We don't get a lot of the good decisions, I don't think. I think we're just an afterthought in a lot of because we're a small town relative to Los Angeles or San Francisco. We're small potatoes, very small revenue, very small everything. Right. You know, but it's what makes it San Diego. It's not L.A. and it's not San Francisco. Right. We don't want it to become that. Right. I don't know if you've taken a drive down along Imperial Avenue and Interstate 5 lately, but it looks like Skid Row down that way. Oh, it's awful. It's bad. It's disgusting. And that's people's neighborhoods. People live in those neighborhoods. They talk about disenfranchised low-income people. You're disenfranchising them with that. By putting that in their neighborhoods, you're making them suffer. Yeah. Instead of addressing the problem. Well, do you think the mass exodus from California will be affecting these politicians' decisions because we lost to congressman? You know, in some point, it may at some point it may or may not. Um, I think the big one is businesses leaving because of taxation. I mean, look, look at the way they treated Elon Musk. Right. And he just showed him he left. Right. I think more and more people will get fed up with it. Mm-hmm. The way I see the way the, the recall election went, it's 60, 40, at least in San Diego, it was. And that tells me that there's 60 percent takers and 40 percent makers. And that ratio won't continue to stay there. It'll get worse and worse right. because the people with the ability to leave will do so. Right. And they'll take their money and their wealth with them. They're not going to leave it behind. Right. So, I mean, I, I, I think one of the astounding things is I've got friends that work for the state and they're on the state retirements. They don't stay in California and keep their retirement money and spend it here. Right. They're moving to other places that are less expensive. Well, I mean, it's not because they're not great retirements. Right. It's because they want to save their money. Right. Well, I have a friend moving to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah. Because it's at 3%, we're at 13%. True, but December 13th in Pittsburgh, December 13th in San Diego, not a tough equation, <laughs> right? Different. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Can you take can you take can you take a company, a television company, and put it in Yuma, Arizona, and broadcast it into San Diego as a San Diego? No, because you lose. Well, there's markets. Yuma's market 
now you're dealing with a streaming type deal. Like, you still, if, as long as you don't have syndicated programming, if it's your all original content from you, you can do what you'd like with it, just like a podcast or a webcast. Yes. Okay. But if you're airing, uh, you know, Paramount and uh, Smith and Minnie Anderson and Warner Brothers, all that, that stuff has market limitations by boundary. Los Angeles, San Diego, Los Angeles, Orange County are the same, Riverside, San Bernardino. San Diego is its own market. Right. Tijuana is its own market, but we're adjacent and we can interlap mm-hmm. with signals. So some of those can't be stopped, but we can't receive El Centro here and vice versa off the air. Right. Yeah. So you can't stream the streaming deal, like if that's where it's all going. Right. They'll have to come with, they can, they can, they can geofence things by location and the phone didn't come. I mean, there's all, it's like the guys who were running the football games online from Canada. It's that same kind of concept. And then eventually they blocked them. Right. Yeah. Right. I think the one hazard in that idea is if on the internet, if there's a kill switch on the internet, you kill broadcasting into that methodology. I mean, right now, if we have a disaster, we set, we have a generator, the transmitter, we have a private microwave. We can get a signal out transmitter and put it out to the community and feed them information. If that all comes via the public internet and they shut it off, you're not going to get any information out to the public. Yeah. So that's the danger with webcasting, you know, getting rid of free over the air television. You know, the whole transmitter, you know, to everybody is the way to really keep maybe one or two more. I don't know how it's all going to go. But they're selling these towers and, and, and you know, if somebody's offering you whatever it is. To go off the air and sell your license. $1 yeah. million dollars for these towers? Yeah, but it didn't pan out so well in the large markets, did it? Say again? It didn't pan out so well in the large markets. Really? Yeah. All NBC did. And in New York, number one market, NBC sold their WNBC. and went on Telemundo 21 in New Jersey and broadcast Channel 4 back into New York on Channel 21. Really? And got a big, hefty chunk of money. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 million they got to do that. They're just all sharing towers. You know, they with the with the current digital ATSC one, you can just put multiple channels if you know. Yeah. You know, a lot of stations would take advantage. The revenue is kind of minimal at it, but it, you know, it's other alternative viewing. You can put on one HD channel. There's a station in Los Angeles with ten channels on it, standard up. Yeah. The picture quality goes down, but I mean, it's still video getting out. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. <laughs> so we're so we have we sold ours. What's that? Have we sold ours? What's that? The tower? Nope. We have it? No. Could if we sold ours, would we be able to to hook up with somebody else? There's models that some some entities are using those models and sharing. Independent though, because they're not going to want us. But we're just a channel. We would feed that channel into another encoder, and they would put KUSI on thirty nine dot two or thirty nine dot three or whatever. Right. Yeah, you could you could still do that. There in some of the ATSC three experiments, that's what they're doing. They're calling them a lighthouse station. They move everybody to one channel and minimal bandwidth, and while well, they put their ATSC three signals on okay. and test them, that's what they're doing. Called lighthouse. Right. They are doing that where they share. They reach an agreement within the marketplace. Uh, it was Tecna and some. It was some of the corporate entities that were big on ATSC three. So when the free when the free broadcasting goes away, which well ATSC three will be free. It'd just be more channels per transmitter. Okay, I can remember sitting in Austin, Texas, 20 years ago in the studio, and we were talking about, you know, it's just all going to be in one big thing, you know, broadcasting and cable, I mean, broadcasting and internet. And this was really good days before social media. Right. You know? uh, that really changed things. And so, yeah. I mean, now that you're, you're able well, to... Well, citizen journalists. Citizen journalists. Yeah. I mean, they're everybody big. can say they're a journalist now. Well, the phones have facilitated that. Yes, they have. So how's that going to change things? How's that going to change? I think in some ways it could be better because you got more points of view coming through. 
Uh, it depends how it's presented. But the, at the end of the day, it's a revenue stream. Correct. Getting, getting eyeballs to watch your screen. Right. So how can we monetize that? Because, you know, we're, we can beat our chest on how much we love journalism all day long. But at the end of the day, if, if there's nothing to monetize. Well, the newspapers are a good example of that, where they're headed. Right. They're going broke. Right. They can't monetize it. Nobody wants to pay a free newspaper. I mean, they just don't. Right. And, you know, the clickbait ads. I mean, there's a cookies really made it interesting because it's targeted advertising. Ideally, the advertisers want to sell you. They think they got a sales lead with Mark Mathis for a new weather system. As an example, they're going to look and see the guys that go to weather.com or, you know, they want to find those cookies and they're going to target advertising to you. That's one thing that's changed a lot with the advertising over the internet is the data available. These places that give you something for nothing, they're taking your data and utilizing it as a sales target. Right. That's the whole objective of it. Right. It's tar- it's pro it's programmatic targeted advertising. Well, like I'll get I'll get which some people are okay with, but if you're a privacy nut, you may not be okay with it. Well, I, I get people all the time that'll say, "Hey, I went on um, I went on AccuWeather.com and I saw you. You know, they're saying watch Mark Mathis on KUSI.com. Are you doing weather for AccuWeather? Right. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, but and this, we were licensed with AccuWeather. Right, we we have a storyteller. But they had they had our ad up yeah. on AccuWeather's on the side, mm-hmm. and so there was a cross mingling marketing. Right. But again, they were looking for somebody looking at weather. I mean, it 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 assists the advertiser in getting a more of a probably a guaranteed sale. I would say is what the which is always the objective. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. You want a guy, you're going to put that advertising out to the guy you think you're going to sell something to, right. rather than the broad masses. But I still think that information, if you don't advertise, then they don't even know your product's there. Right. So it's a two-edged sword for the guy buying the advertising. But I think that's the difference in internet and just television broadcast in general. We're, we're advertising the masses. We don't. We have a metering system, but I don't think it's all that accurate. You're talking about Nielsen? Yeah, yeah. I just don't think it's accurate. Because like you said, when you go out in the community and you say, oh, I see you on Channel 51. Or you tell someone you work for KUSI. Oh, I love that station. Well, the meters don't necessarily reflect that. Right. And, and you know, the, again, more community involvement. You know, we got we got local where we covered the Delmar races. Nobody else goes and does that. Nobody does remote television anymore. They can't afford to. Right. Uh, PPR, good example. I mean, that's a tremendous task. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it for, I don't know, 21 years, I think. And in the, in the leaps and bounds that that has grown and the technology's changed. And, I mean, I think PPR was probably one of the best investments we ever made because we interest young people in television broadcast news in some manner because we're featuring them and they grow up and they become KUSI future viewers. Right. So there's there's some strategic moves that we can make as a broadcaster to try and assure that we keep people watching local news. Right. You know, I, one is bringing unfettered news, you know, not a, not a political shade to it. Well, see, I, you and I um, come from the days of, uh, you know, where the general manager would you know, just lean on the general sales manager and go hang out at the country club all day long. And, you know, he may make a few contacts here and around the, the city. And But, you know, it was the general salesman and the sales force would go out and they would shake a lot of hands and try to get the, but we're, we're figuring out how to sell and monetize the product differently than 20, 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's definitely changed. Yeah, no question about that. And, 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 and that's... 
But I still think I still think that small business one-on-one relationship with the sales executive makes a difference, having knowing who you're selling to. I mean, if you think about it, we still have Jerry Navarro. That family's been selling furniture in San Diego for years. I bought furniture there. My kids are going to buy furniture there. Mm-hmm. My parents bought furniture there. Those community ties, I mean, keep small communities together. The big entities, I mean, what are they going to offer? Right. I mean, we actually go out and do live commercials for some of these, these advertisers. Yeah. And that Nobody about? does that. Nobody does that. We've been doing it for years. We can do live commercials on, on Good Morning San Diego. And at some point, it we... It doesn't hurt our reputation or... Our no. And we've got the flexibility to do it because then we're not hitting a network break. Right. It's, and also, here's another thing that I think that, that we're... Um, these young people that have come up through KUSI, they know infinitely more about social media than mm-hmm. than you and I did. So, right. so there's a smarter group coming up that we could merge with the knowledge. Yeah, the, the, with the power of it. Yeah, the, yes. The power of the reach that it has. Yes. Correct merge reach. And, yeah. and merge it with the news knowledge of maybe some of the older folks in Correct. The, department i mean i I think that's where they somehow do that i think that's where the newspapers kind of missed it right and and not getting in that early yeah i mean i mean the newspaper was the mainstay of you know information for city for years but then television changed that radio changed that you know i think some of you know i think one of the cooler things that we've done recently is getting on with dave shelley and chainsaw my wife gets up every morning and watches it for that segment yeah i mean it it ties in an an entity with another audience and i mean these community reaches that we can do that the other ones can't. Right. I mean, if you think about it, Dave Shelley and Chainsaw were on a network affiliate that owned them and they could never even do anything. And they're the same building. Right. Why can we do it? Because right. we want to. We want to bring that to the viewer. It's something unique and different. Right. That was Tommy's idea, I believe. But I mean, it was a great idea. No, no it was a fantastic idea. I wish we could do it longer. Yeah. You know, I wish we could have oh, I think it's, it's, I think it's hilarious. Yucking it up with and you. I've been listening to them since they were on the air. And now you're going to get some backlash with uh, the, the hard news folks. But if that, I I used to watch Good Morning San Diego when it was they would have a news segment, right? You know, and then the rest of the show was. No, oh, I remember Rod Luck going out to Manhole Thomas and all those old segments. I mean, this is all the old talent that we've had through the area. Well, but I think uh, COVID changed that. I think the political landscape changed. But we, I think we navigated it pretty well. Oh, I think we did a great job with it. I, I think I think we're one of the few people that actually cared about the small businesses in the community. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm Kate, not saying we did a bad job. I'm no, just saying that it just changed it. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it just changed the way that we we had to, had to. we had to, sure, sure, because of regulation and everything else and health and safety. I mean, it was right. You know, we were out there grinding down paint poles to put make mic sticks for six foot. We've made all those. Right, they weren't available. We made them. Right. Put mic clips on the end. We put the wireless mic, and we got away around the problem. Right. We're six feet away. So, I mean, I just think that it's the ever-changing world that we live in and the fast, the speed of which things change now. Yeah. You have to adapt. Yeah. Which I think we've done a pretty good job. We've done a damn good job. We really have. And and, and you're 100% part of it. And all the things. Explain the rating system. The, like the Nielsen? Yeah, oh, the metering? Mm-hmm. Oh, Nielsen metering. <laughs> so in San Diego... And it costs like a million dollars hundred a year. hundred something thousand a month, I believe, is what our contribution is. And this is ridiculous. Now, spread, blows my mind. Now, that's each and every station in San Diego. So I figured that's 500 grand a year, or 500,000 a month they're getting at a minimum. And how many people? 
400. I'm told we were supposed to increase pre-COVID to 600 meters. And recently, Nielsen has been discredited from the rating system. So I think when they place the meters, they're kind of lazy. They don't place them randomly. They place them in communities. And for years, I've watched the other stations try and figure out where the meters are by tailoring their news, local news coverage to certain communities, trying to see when they'll get a bump in the ratings to figure out where the meters are. I mean, it's nothing wrong with that, but it kind of shows the inaccuracy of the metering system because it's not random and it's not randomly placed throughout a community. It's in the, it's human tendency, by the way, we all know that. I'm not going to work as hard. If I have to go to Del Mar, then to go to San Ysidro and then to El Cajon and then to Escobedo, I'm going to try and put them somewhere where they're somewhat close if I have to support them or whatever I need to do. So that's human nature. That I can't cite them for that. But unfortunately, for the amount of money that they're charging the TV stations to do that, they ought to provide a little bit more diversity in their metering locations. Well, NetStar, and you know that how yeah. many stations that they own, they got rid of Nielsen on every single station. Right. Was they said we're, we're not we're done with this. And I was in the meeting when NetStar came to our television station, told us that they were getting rid of Nielsen, and I said, "How are you going to judge?" How much to charge for advertising? And they said, we no one looks at Nielsen to, to determine the ad, ad rates anymore. Right. Because they're buying in bulk. And, and that's a conversation for, for the sales guys. Sales and marketing folks. But it's not, they're not looking at, they used to. They used to look at Nielsen a lot. That's when they were diaries and they were honestly filled out. Right. And they, and they, so one of the models that they used for San Diego, and one of the disadvantages, we were not a, we're not a network affiliate, we're an independent. So as I recall the last conversation I had about metering, they weighted us to a station in Portland. Well, the demographics in Portland and San Diego are completely Wait, different. They, so all the independents are lumped into one group. Why yeah. did that change again? I, I don't know what they've done recently because there hasn't been a lot of discussion about any of it since COVID had hit. Right. So there hasn't been any, but I remember that they had weighted us to the station in Portland and I'm thinking, what possible relevance does Portland have to San Diego? Right. You know, it's just not the same place and not the same citizens. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with algorithms and math, but I don't think that's necessary. Viewing habits of, are so random, yeah. you know, and since the remote control and the converter boxes, that's really changed. You don't have to get up and go turn the channel. It's a whole lot more. But do you, do, you, do you think, are they still lumping us in with the MCI? I had heard. I couldn't that. honestly say yes or no, but I look at the metering numbers and I know we got better numbers. Oh, than, hell yes. Yeah, than what I we see. I can't, like, you can't have the, the events that we had for Lauren, for the, you know, the Lucania. Right. And the, uh, and the turnout, oh the community God. turnout. And there were hundreds of people. And then you hear like the events we the events we cover, even with COVID going on, the the, the the people that turn out saw it on us and go to the event, right? Which helps the you know the event. So yeah, I, it's hard to believe. I mean, now it could be word of mouth, could be social media. We it's hard to tell. You'd actually have to have a questionnaire out there when they came in. It's hard to get people to do that. Right. But you know, I I still think we have a pretty big impact in the community. I think a significant amount of people watch us, yeah. whether they're metered or not. We don't know. We know they're not because. What, what is it, a million three or whatever we have in San Diego? How could 600, and it's not 600, it's 400, accurately replicate 
what's watching KUSI or anybody else for that matter. It's all of us. Right. You know, they could they could have went to the people meter system like they did with radio with the subaudible tones. There's a lot. Of, the encoder that we have for Nielsen actually has a subaudible tone generator in it. So they could do people meters. Yeah. They just don't want to buy the hardware. They want all this income, but not outlay any technology. Nielsen, yeah. Yeah. Well, they I did people meters. I worked in uh, Charlotte for people meters and they get rid of them uh, in Charlotte because there were they weren't. A, it was too expensive, I think, for Nielsen I think that's to keep them, running. keep them running. Accurately. Right. And charging them and all the other. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember we had it for about a year. They didn't last very long. Um, our, it was fairly effective in radio, I think. Yeah. But I, I, I'm not, I know I haven't worked in radio, so I can't tell you yes or no. Are they still uh, doing people meters in New York? I believe they are. Are they? Yeah, I still think they put some audible tones. RDS changes that. There's a lot of things that have changed. People meter, for those who don't, it it tells you exactly what people are watching at At that moment. Yeah. It's a digital recorder now. Yeah. And it it can drive a broadcaster nuts because you're like, oh, you were wearing a red jacket and our people meters were high yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, the micro data. You know, you're, you're going. Look, I'm just doing the same thing I did yesterday. Right, just wearing a red jacket. Yeah, yeah, or the bright yellow one in your case. <laughs> but I mean, I I think how, how does KUSI today? And you were here, you know, with the uh, uh, Rod Lux and uh, Stan Miller and Laura Buxton and all those guys. How how are we? How are we looking as we head into, you know? Well, we're staying up with we're staying up with technology. I mean, we're buying all the current news gathering technology, bonded cell units. That's why we don't drive the live truck so much anymore. Uh, the cost has come down. I mean, again, you're using public internet. I mean, we still I still keep live trucks mm-hmm. with our private microwave backbone because if and when the big earthquake comes and severs the fiber to the internet, we won't have internet to use those backpacks. We'll still be able to get the public news via our microwave and generators, and we'll stay on the air and keep information flowing to the public. Right. So I'm still, you know, I, I I buy into the technology, but it's not 100%. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. You know, I didn't think about that. That, that the internet, via some you know, natural disaster, could go like that. Most of the fibers run in the natural gas pipeline system owned by a company called Williams. And, they, and the railroad easements. And they all cross earthquake faults. Really? That's where most of the glass comes from because a lot of stuff's diluted. It's all distributed by glass, pretty much all of it. There's a small amount of it on satellite microwave, but not most of it's glass. Really? Yeah. Man. Yep. Oh, I mean, a lot of bandwidth in glass. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but, we'll, but that'll be streamlined sooner or later. Well, you can't stop physical breakage of it. Remember, I don't remember somebody was digging something in LA and broke the loop. There's ways you can, there's topologies you can use that will circumvent circles, stars, loops. Yeah. But if you sever the main line, you're going to lose service. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there's the, there's all kinds of guys out there with you know, ill content you know, or whatever they are that cause denial of service attacks and all this other stuff that slows the Internet down. Hmm. You know, there's, it, it's it's challenging. I mean, there's cyber criminal. I mean, there's all kinds of activity that at least when I'm getting the signal from KUSI, I'm encoding it and I'm sending it to the transfer. It involves none of that. Right. It comes from here, it goes to there, it gets to the consumer. There's nothing in between it. Right. It's over the air, it's free. But when you're dealing with the internet and public IPs and all that other stuff, yes, you're in you're, you're in that wild, wild west. Yes. You really are though. Yeah. I 
mean, and, and, and it's going to take another 20 years. It's just like the entity they call the first mile and the last mile. You got to get them there. The middle's probably going to be fine. Right. Yeah. Right. And we're in the first mile. Well, getting it here, but with, with a private network like our own facility, then that's not going to happen. Right. And that's why we keep those. Huh. <laughs> I mean, man, that's a great conversation. You want to have round two one day? Sure. All right. We almost went an hour. You're the longest we've talked to. <laughs> I can talk all day long. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.